Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self-defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jalakor-Rude. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolikar-Rude. And today I have an amazing guest and we're going to have such a cool conversation. I'm so excited to bring her on the show and I know you're going to love what she has to say. Raven Scott is a survivor of an abusive relationship with a narcissist. She's gone from being a people pleaser to a kick-ass author, podcaster, and mentor. And she's a certified meditation teacher and a destiny coach. She teaches women how to shed negative patterns one step at a time to find their power and potential through healing so that they can kick ass in their own lives. Raven has a terrific podcast called Unlock Your Destiny. And she recently published a book that is a memoir combined with an empath's healing guide. And that book is called Empath and the Narcissist, a healing guide for people pleasers. I'm going to read a quote from Raven that captures why I wanted to bring her on the show. And here it is. She says, I know how it feels when you can't breathe without someone. I know the very real fear of the unknown. I know the sense of being paralyzed by fear and receiving threats from the love of your life who has turned against you because you finally chose to stand up for yourself. Welcome to the show, Raven. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for reading that. That's very powerful to hear back from my own self. <laughs> it's very powerful to read and, and speak aloud. And you know, just really reinforced for me why you and I really hit it off when we first spoke. And it was like, oh, yeah, you got to come on the show. So <laughs> before we dive into that nitty gritty stuff, though, I like to do some warm up questions just to kind of get in the groove. So are you ready for that? Absolutely. All right. So who is your favorite author? Oh, I have so many. I'm going to be completely honest. Diana Gabaldon. I don't know if you've heard of her. Who yes. Outlanders. Those like has nothing to do with self-improvement at all, but like she's my favorite. I love how in depth she went and like the history and the romance and the intimacy. Like I just loved how she wrote. Beautiful writer. Absolutely. She is on my all-time favorite hit list too. And I think one of the extraordinary things about her books, the Outlander series, is that when they started turning them into a television show, she actually stayed completely engaged with the production process. And so the shows actually are fairly true to the books. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 Have you watched them? I've watched them. Yes. I still really love her books much more, just like anything. Like it seems like when you transfer it over to film, it captures the feeling a lot better, but you miss out all of those really amazing details that you can put in a book. Yes. And she is a master at describing sort of the inner life of the characters and their thought processes and their emotions. So, oh, I'm yes. all in on your favorite. Yes, me too. <laughs> Uh, Has there been an animal that has been important to you in your journey? Uh, Yes. Um, A horse. I had one particular horse who was a gift. Literally, he was a gift. (laughs) And he was emotionally a gift. 
um, all, I know that we have this in common. You have horses too, but I, for my whole life, um, just was obsessed with horses and realized that I just loved to like have the thrill of the ride and had, you know, took lessons and was obsessed and showed and all that as a kid. And then I became an adult and got it, you know, into um, this relationship. And before that, I thought I was going off to college. So I sold my, the like the love of my life horse and knew he was going to go to a happy home in Hawaii. So I felt at peace about that. But then I still missed it. So my trainer, she had this horse who was an ex race horse and he, she's like, obviously knew she couldn't really sell him because he was quite a handful and she couldn't just give him away to anybody. She knew I could handle him. So like I always say, it's a love, love and a curse, but he touched my life so much because he, in the darkest times in those emotional times in that relationship, I would drive to him. Not that it was safe or anything, but I would go down to the stables at like 1am in the morning and I would go to him and I would just take him out and let him graze and touch him and be with him and like, just let him like, calm my nerves and calm me down. So that, oh, that's, yeah. Oh, I, I love that. And I, I like that we have horses in common and I'm sure you've seen recently that there are some studies that are, they're out now about the actual physiological effect that horses have on humans in terms of your nervous system and your heartbeat. Have you seen those? I haven't seen those studies, but I know they're very therapeutic. And I actually got into when I We'll get into this, but when I left my relationship, I had this whole, like, I'm leaving my whole career and I'm restarting my whole life. And so that that's what I got into was the horse business. And I wanted to kind of transform it into a therapy business and have it be like a therapeutic center, but it just did not work out. I had babies and it was just too expensive and all that, you know, didn't, didn't work out, but I absolutely know they are very therapeutic and they're so calming. Yeah. Yes, they are. And I've had uh, women on the show who actually do healing work with horses and in conjunction with people who have come from like military yes, environments. Yes, they help and, with that PTSD. And, yeah. 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 All kinds. All kinds. So, yeah. Super cool. Well, what is your favorite self care practice? Hmm. I think investing in myself, turning off the phone. And finding a beautiful nature spot. Typically, it's near a tree. And it doesn't have to be far, you know, my neighborhood. And just being quiet, to be completely honest, to ask my my guides questions of what I'm working through and to find the answers in that still quiet time. Mm, I, I love that. And I think that getting out of the box that we live in most of the time and letting go of those, those tools and those things that keep us connected out into the chaos of the world is very healing. And it, it, it's hard even in a city sometimes to find a tree like you're talking about where you can just go, you know, and you're not, you're not still hearing people talking and cars going by and stuff like that. But for me, that's been one of the great benefits of moving up into the foothills in the Sierras is that's pretty much where I am all the time now. <laughs> right. You're engulfed in that beautiful nature. Yeah. I am most of the time, most of the yeah. time. 
But um, I love how even in cities, they do have parks. And if you are feeling like you can't even find that quiet space, it, you know, when you take your shoes off and you walk on the grass barefoot, it, it really grounds you so that all of that, you know, noise and buzzing kind of like disappears away and you start to focus on seeing all of the ecosystem, even within your city and like the, the butterflies possibly going from bush to bush or a bird or something. There's always those still in the city. So mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Isn't it amazing that even in, in the heart of a major city, you can still find nature? Yes. Yeah, you can. Yeah, that's cool. Well, what advice would you give to young women in their 20s that you wish you'd known when you were that age? Oh, the number one thing is that their self-worth is to, that you are amazing. You are so powerful and you are worth far beyond what you think that you are worth. You know, you get so caught up, especially when you're young and you're trying to develop yourself who am I, who, you know, your identity, comparing yourself, especially on social media now, all of these things, you know, you are worth what you're dreaming for. If you're desiring, you know, to be loved a certain way and you're not, you are worth that. And your situation right now may not be providing that. And it's okay. Like just jump out and take a leap of faith. You are worth and what you're dreaming of and the universe wants to bring it to you. Well, that's powerful. That that truly <laughs> is. Yeah. It, it's I wish I had known that because it was so scary. I thought that no one else would love me. I thought that I was worthless without, you know, especially talking about me myself being in that relationship. And I tied my whole self-worth into this person who completely used and abused and manipulated that power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and when you're in your early 20s, you know, you're coming out of that stage of, you know, first in the initial years, you're very focused on getting your identity and your values and your meaning and everything from your family. And then it sort of shifts yeah. to being your peers. Mm-hmm. And then once you get into your 20s, it's a brand new stage. And I think a lot of a lot of us in that those early years feel a little bit lost and are kind of looking for something to grab onto that that's like, okay, like this is, this is me. This is my life. This is, this is how I'm going to be an adult. Mm -hmm. And that sense of self-worth, you know, for it to start to come from you rather than from external sources is a huge piece, Mm -hmm. I think, for being able to make that shift into being an adult. Does that make sense? Yeah, I was just going to say, as you were saying that, it is already within you and you might be seeking it from outside sources, which I know I 100% admit that I am guilty of that too. And I think we we all do in that stage, but just if you can realize quicker that it's not outside you, you have it already within you and tap into your amazingness and your confidence and your self-worth. And even if you don't know what's going to happen, what career you're going to take, who you're going to meet, like, you know, that you're on the, the right path and the next right step will, will guide you and will come your way because you're confident within yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, hence you coming on the show that's called Born to be a Badass. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I, we are all born to be a badass. Yeah, I yeah, love your show. Yeah. 
Well, and it's that is the thing is like we do often look outside ourselves for something and never really realize that it, that we've had it all along, you know, that it's been inside. So I love that mm-hmm. that is where you went with that piece of advice. It's very powerful. Well, let's talk a little bit about like where did you grow up and and what was your growing up like? What were your early years like? Yeah, I grew up in California, USA. I was very privileged, sheltered in a affluent community. I was also sheltered in the sense that I grew up in a Christian household, um, you know, traditionally went to church all week long, <laughs> Wednesdays, you know, Sundays, and depending if there was like another small group meeting, maybe on a Monday or Tuesday or something. And I grew up like in spending a lot of time in the church. My parents were active volunteers, always being very active in their church. And my school as well. I didn't go to public school. I went to a very small private school. And so I was I was surrounded by biblical ideas and traditions. I was surrounded by love. I was also surrounded by a lot of expectations and rules to follow, very strict, almost like Old Testament type rules to follow in this very modern world. So I, I felt like I had, I bore a lot of responsibility just naturally as my own human being and personality, um, as well as just the conditioning and the uh, expectations in the household of, you know, being a good person, a good Christian and making sure that we got to heaven. And what, what was your friend circle like? Did, did you, and did you have siblings? I had, yes, I had one sister. I actually, a little bit of a deeper dive in the story. I have two siblings, my older sister, who's six years apart, and my brother, who passed away when he was two before I was born. And then I was born. I wasn't actually going to be born, but the death of my brother instigated this, that once they kind of moved past their grief, and maybe this was part of their grief, is my mother really feeling that desire to try again and have another baby. So then I was, I was born after that. So friend circle, just to kind of touch on that, I had small friend circles. Like I said, mentioned my small group in my church youth group. I was never in like the cool crowd, even in my small Christian school, every school, no matter how big or small, there's the cool kids, the nerds, the drama kids, and the like, kind of like the outcasts, like that don't quite fit in. I was always that person, even though I could stand and hang out with the cool kids and they welcomed me, I didn't feel like I belonged. I felt very out of place. I don't know why, other than from some of my karmic journeys and past lives and Kashuk records that I've had read, that's the only explanation of why I didn't quite feel like I fit in. So I always had like one best friend, especially in those formidable years as teenage teenagers. Mm-hmm. I always had one best friend and they were always a, a senior. Like I always had friends that were older than me. I was kind of more mature for my age, beyond my years, kind of a child. And so they were always older, but then they graduated and they left. So then I have to make a new best friend and it always seemed to be a senior. And it's just a weird like pattern that I witnessed, you know, as an adult looking back on my childhood. So for a lot of us that felt like we were not quite the same as our peer groups, and, and I'm including myself in that bunch because I grew up feeling very much like an outsider as well. For me, it, it was the dynamic of in growing up in a very small town in Oklahoma 
and then traveling all over the world and then coming back to Stillwater, Oklahoma every time. So, you know, I had gone to France and to England and to India, and then all of my all of my peers were in Stillwater, Oklahoma. You know, I, wow. I really felt odd. That was one <laughs> one large reason why. But for a lot of us who who grow up feeling like we're not quite the same as our peer groups, there's you know, some teasing and bullying and and that type of thing that that comes our way. Did you experience that at all? I did in my younger years, but it was directly related to a situation that I write about in my book, something that we did, my a friend, my girlfriend and I did in confidence. And I think I was about 11. I forget how old you are in third grade. I have the specifics in my book. I was very young and we were best friends. And that bullying, she was kind of the only bully. Everyone was nice to me beyond that. But the, I had a situational bully where I had, I felt like I was in trouble. I felt like I was going to hell of, you know, what we did. And so I, you know, told my mom what happened. I had like a stomach ache. I was really scared. I just had like so much guilt in my body. And then, so then she told her mother what happened. And therefore, after that, I was, she was was just the most horrible bully ever, every day, day in and day out, just telling me I was ugly, cutting me down, getting the entire class to gang up on me. And that Red Rover game, like she completely manipulated the Red Rover game to make a huge like make fun of me. Like at the end, no one picked me. Right. So then my self-worth kept going down and down. No one picked me for, to go over to the red Rover. And then the very end, when I was supposed to be picked, she, I don't know how she did, but she got all of the class to get down on their knees and bark like a dog and like bark at me. So yes, to the answer of the bully, but I wasn't so much like I felt like an outcast. It was a very specific reason. I know exactly why she did it, but as a child, you can't process and understand why that happened, even though you directly know the situation happened. Yeah, I couldn't process it until actually when I was 30, I was able to process that in therapy. Wow. What a a horrible thing to have your best friend betray you like that and become the nasty person who not only was nasty on her own behalf, but enrolled everybody else in the quote game that Mm -hmm. she was, that she was playing that, that is hard to wrap my mind around, you know, that, that a youngster could be like that. And yet I think that what that exposes is that sometimes people, people can manipulate and people can be very good at presenting, you know, one face in one environment and another one in another, you know, so I'm sure that all of those people that she enrolled, you know, she presented one persona to that yeah, was very, yeah. very persuasive and, no and believable. Idea why they had no idea why it was so. It was such a great therapeutic thing to for it to dawn on me. And, you know, because I was in a small school, I grew up with all these people. She left actually the school, but the, her best, her new best friend that she got to always bully me with, she got her on her page. Senior year of high school, she was. She said. Remember that time when we like were making fun of you? She's like, why did we do that? Like she had no idea why she was manipulated into that game herself. And that girl was long gone. And she realized I was a cool person. Like I was a great, nice person. And I'm like, I wasn't ready to even process that. Like I said, I didn't process that whole bullying situation until I was 30. So I just went, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I have no answer for you. (laughs) Sorry. And I mean, what an experience for you, though, to go through that betrayal and to go through 
you know, that kind of treatment and and see somebody be such a successful manipulator. And mm-hmm. do you do you draw a connection between that early experience and your eventual relationship with a narcissist? Like how how did that all unfold? Yeah, I do think there was a connection because that original wound was never healed. Even though I didn't trust people anymore, I didn't also trust myself. So I, and on top of that, especially narcissists, they are literally master manipulators and getting you reeled into believing that they love you and that you're like the only thing in the world that matters. And they elevate you up to kind of put you as a trophy on their shelf before they just, you know, discard you on their shelf. So her words and that whole time, that wound, the original wound of that bully really brought my self-esteem and self-worth down to zero. Like I really didn't think that anyone, as much as I tried, every time that a connection with another boy maybe failed or didn't quite connect, a normal healthy person would naturally go, okay, like we're not a good fit, not a good pair, move on, right? Let's try this other person or let's, you know, learn from that lesson and move forward. Every time it was extremely devastating, which connected back to her original wound of I am nothing, I am worthless, you know, the betrayal of her best friend, you know, the best friend and her trust, it just kept pushing on that wound like a hot prod. So one one bad date turned into a, I'm never going to find love and he doesn't, no one will ever love me kind of a narrative and absolutely was connected to her bullying. Yes, absolutely. Therefore then put me and set me up to be a perfect target and a perfect person to kind of be cradled and groomed into this emotionally abusive relationship. Well, can you talk a little bit about like what a narcissist is, like how you can recognize them. Because in your book, you talk about like not even realizing at the time that you were involved with a narcissist. And I, I think that's not uncommon. So can you shed yeah. a little bit of light on on like types of narcissism and, and like what characterizes them a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And I, like you said, I wrote a whole chapter on there's different types of narcissists and then there's a whole bunch of signs for you to see. And pretty much I ignored all of them. (laughs) I ignored all of the red flags. Number one is that they have zero empathy. They might make you appear like they actually care, but when it comes down to it, they really don't have any empathy. Meaning if you get into a Oh, not even that, because usually at the beginning, you don't get into arguments because they're just love bombing you and grooming you and just literally putting on the best face ever, just like you would normally when you first date, but like a hundred times fold. So maybe you get hurt by a friend and you think that they're going to like console you as a partner. They kind of don't know how to do that. They might sit there and do nothing. They might try and fix it for you. Like, oh, well, if you had just done this, maybe your friend wouldn't have hurt you. Like they don't hold you and say, I'm so sorry that happened. That really sucks. Like that's really the healthy response to comforting a friend or a partner because they have to, you have to hold space for the emotion to be able to process it and then learn your lesson. So the empathy for the other person is non-existent. And that gets you into trouble also when they start to 
feel like, you know, they may be, be being attacked by you or the situation. That lack of empathy and the defense of of their own self-worth will then trigger an attack, you know, verbally or physically towards you that, you know, you're the one to blame. Everything's always on you. So that's what that that's what happens when they start to kind of pull down their mask and they've already got you as a trophy on their shelf and they become the real them. Mm-hmm. You'll get a lot of your brain gets very mixed up. All of a sudden you're confused about what's right, what's wrong. You may bring them, hey, you know what, let's work on this in our relationship. I see that you do this and I don't like it. By the end of that conversation, they're going to have you sold that the problem is you and everything that you know you need to fix. And it's not their problem and they're not going to work on it. And you completely, either you understand that this is happening and you, you have an opportunity to say no and walk away, or most likely because they're master manipulators, you're sold on that concept. You're like, okay, all right, I'm going to work on this and things will get better. And then the pattern repeats and repeats and repeats. Mm-hmm. And there, there can be very covert narcissists. They, they may present themselves, you know, lavishing you with gifts, see, seeming like they're overly extending themselves to accommodate you, but they're actually really just showing the world and themselves like, Hey, I'm a really good person. Like, or, you know, they're, they're very service oriented and they're serving their community, but are they serving from a real genuine heart or are they serving from an ego stance of I'm a really good person. I give of my time and I give you gifts and give, 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 but really um, it's not a genuine giving because they're bolstering their sense of self-worth and their ego up. Mm-hmm. I can, I can think of many people that I know who fit that there's an organization in Silicon Valley called Women SV that works mm-hmm. with women who are in partnerships with the big muckety mucks in Silicon Valley. And mm. this description of them, not of the women, but of the men that they're in relationship with, really describes them. You know, they're the high tech execs and the Stanford positions and, you know, the big movers and shakers who absolutely out to the rest of the world look like they're incredible humanitarians and super generous, you know, pouring money into all kinds of charitable causes and all of that. But then behind closed doors, they're absolutely horrendous to the women. They're a nightmare at home. Yes. They're horrible people. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That just popped right into my head as you were describing that kind of narcissist. Like, oh my gosh. Yes. And those are the trickiest ones because you think that there's they're great, but then you get again you get you get into the relationship and they lock you onto their shelf and they're like, okay, she's set, she's on my shelf now. I can just like let my guard down, and then the real insecure person comes out, you know, lashing out at this situation or that, and you just yeah, you kind of go like, what just happened? Am I taking mm-hmm. crazy pills or is this like really, really you or <laughs> what is happening? Yeah. It's like always goes through your head. Like what is going on? <laughs> it, it kind of feels like you're, you're living in an alternate reality sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then they love to kind of like distance themselves after that you know, encounter, give you space, give you time to process. And as a really kind and, you know, maybe codependent or 
a person who just wants to please, right? Like you just want it to fix. You want the conflict to go away. You're more than willing to take responsibility and blame because it's number one, a lot easier. Number two, you might have been conditioned to do that. You, you start to just take that on and go, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This, this should fix it moving forward. And then if they feel you pull away a bit, they'll give you like, you know, a bouquet of flowers or they'll love bomb you like, oh, let's go out on a vacation. And then you're like, oh, look, he's really trying or she's really trying. But it's just the cycle of like, oh, let's make sure like my trophy stays on the shelf and she's good. Like pour, pour, pour the love because I'm really insecure if she leaves. The thing is, they're also extremely insecure themselves. So it's not like they're evil people who have like this like plot and plan. They like they're just functioning out of you know a huge amount of emotional duress themselves, that original wound that they have that's never been healed. And this is just the way that their ego is functioning, very unhealthy. So this cycle of blame and pushing off and performance space, like I'm perfect, I'm the one who's not wrong, loving that other person, don't leave, I need you, you know so on and so forth. And then you just have this push pull cycle and relationship that just can send you just for a loop. Well, and it also sounds as though, you know, the narcissism often manifests in coercion and control. They have to, because they weren't able to control whatever was happening in their life where their original wound was. Yep. Usually it's major duress in childhood, either a very distracted parent, maybe the parent was depressed and didn't give them the emotional needs they needed. They could be picking it up, that behavior, just because they have narcissist parents. And so therefore, they're like, this is just how you do things in the world. And this is how they picked up and learned. Could be just, you know, like a big trauma of huge life change when they're young. Again, like they they weren't receiving the the emotional support and need that they needed at the time. And so mm-hmm. they just had to fend for themselves and say, you know what? It looks or like the parents very much driven on like performance based. The parenting was all about like do good, perform, do this, succeed, but very little hugging, maybe very little like allowing of crying and so on and so forth. That type of thing can breed a narcissist as well. Mm-hmm. Well, in your book, one of the things that you said was, uh, and I'm going to read another quote here because it's very well put. Uh, you said, I made seven attempts to move out and leave, and all seven times I missed him and felt lost without his influence and presence in my life. I would think that it was dumb of me to leave, and he sucked me back in to forgive him. And that if I just changed this one little thing, the problem would go away. Now, how, number one, I again think that is extremely common. I, I hear very similar stories from lots of women. And I think that's one of the things that many people who haven't been in this kind of a relationship don't understand about how hard it is to extricate mm-hmm. yourself. So, how did you finally manage to leave for good? Was there something that happened that was a catalyst to that? Or, you know, what made number eight? actually work. Exactly. And I just want to encourage anyone who's listening that number eight is, 
is actually a lower amount of number. The average times of anyone attempting to leave an abusive either physical or emotional relationship is on average 12. So it can be beyond 12 and it can be less than 12. So the number eight time for me, honestly, it was timing. It was divine timing. I had this awakening and you know, it started because I had the awakening and he wasn't able to convince me of his, you know, side. And I was really standing up for myself. It then became physical. So I was about 28. We actually had been married for two years. Again, I thought marrying him would somehow (laughs) fix the problem, like the Disney movies, like that doesn't work. (laughs) If there's not real healthy love before you're married, it's not going to transform into real healthy love after you marry. So we were married two years and my aunt invited me up on a trip to go visit her, her daughters. And she has, you know, children up there in Washington. And honestly, I, I don't remember ever telling her, but I must have somehow like source channeled and like had talked, talked through me to say, Hey, whenever you go to Washington, invite me. And she remembered and she invited me and she said, yeah, well, you know, you said, you said to let you know, um, and I'm going. So would you like to come? And I said, sure. And I, again, I don't know why sure, because this whole time I had not been talking to my family, like very much just was mad at them. And then he stoked that fire. So I was very isolated. I didn't have a lot of friends and I wasn't talking to my family. So I went and had an amazing time, really felt like the love and joy of a family. And around this is my Saturn return, I was 28, and I felt very ready to have a family, which was not what he wanted at all. And so I came back and I was just sharing with him how lovely it was. And immediately he started in with zero empathy. There was no, that sounds great, honey. I'm so glad you had such a great time. It was, those people are such and such and such. They are horrible. No one should be having kids anymore. And having that many is just, you know, burdening our planet and yada, 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 on and on and on. I I didn't even engage any further in the conversation because I realized he was never going to change. It's never going to like, no matter what I say or do, I can't fix this person anymore. I can't keep trying to make this relationship work. And it's definitely not like he's definitely not on board with having kids. So I woke up to that fact and I, I really like, I, I, Went to, we were out having dinner and I went in the bathroom sobbing. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is really the end. And I loved him. Like I, at the beginning of my book, I write, I felt very empty without him. So I didn't know what to do. And I was really afraid of the next step. But I knew I couldn't move forward feeling like this, feeling empty, always feeling like I always was having to fix things and just feeling very unfulfilled in life. And yeah, it just kind of continued on the next couple of weeks. I would come back and just say, you know what, this and that. And you, you know, just, I don't know. I can't even remember exactly what I would say, but I just remember standing up for myself, whatever the situation was, I would be like, well, you know what? I don't agree with that. And no, I don't think you're right about that or something of the sort. And and because we were both very unhealthy and were not happy in the situation, even though we were very connected and bonded and didn't want to leave it, we were always drinking a lot of alcohol. So one night we were talking about this. It became an argument. I don't know how many I have had. I know he had them all throughout the day. He actually became a, like he would wake up and have them and he drank all throughout. And so we were both drunk and he grabbed my wrist and it hurt 
so bad. Like he wouldn't let go and he kept squeezing harder and I was telling him to let go. And so finally I'm like, well, I really don't know what else to do other than to shock him off. So I slapped him in the face for him to let go. And he let go and then he slapped me back in the face. And that's when like, that was my wake up moment of this is not healthy. (laughs) After all those years of the manipulation, for some reason, slapping me in the face was not healthy. And we need to go to counseling and therapy and I need to find a safe space so that we can do that. And I saw, I remember storming off to the bedroom and I saw this dark mist hovering in the bedroom and I like felt myself being pulled into this dark vortex. And I was able two weeks after that to find an apartment, a roommate to move out to, to find a safe space to then try and go to therapy to work on it with him. So that pretty much all of those sequences of events was what really made me commit to moving out. Signing a lease was my thing. I knew that I couldn't break the lease, right? Legally, I'm like, okay, I'm like legally obligated. All the other ones I moved out to a friend, to uh, parents or to my grandparents, to my aunts. This was real. Like I had signed a lease and I held myself accountable that I'm not going back. Mm-hmm. And that's how, I, that's how I was able to stay out. Wow. You know, that that period of time when the control starts to slip and you know, the partner, as, as you did, starts to stand up for herself and to become independent and think for herself and to take a stand for herself. That is such a dangerous time in the relationship. And, you know, I, I am sad to hear that for you, it did go to a physical direction. That's very much what seems to happen because it's like I'm losing emotional, mental, psychological control. The only thing I have left is physical. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I can see how that was kind of the the turning point for you. I'm curious about that dark mist because, I mean, number one, it's amazing that you saw it. What did you interpret that to be? Yeah, I I just interpreted that to be, I don't want to say evil, but for time, I really did believe he was evil. It helped me mourn the relationship. It helped me get out and heal. But I did believe it was some type of evil energy or like trap mm-hmm. that was trying to, that was just existed in the space. It just, you know, I, I, and I don't want to, I, I hadn't really discovered entities. I hadn't discovered ghosts yet. Actually, I was still like an ex-Christian, but not at all on any spiritual path. And so I just interpreted it as, yeah, like this just evil presence that I needed, like the, this oppressive presence as well that I needed to like get out so I could breathe again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, to me, it just sounds like, you know, malevolence just hovering in there. And I think it is amazing yeah. that you you got such a tangible, you know, manifestation of the energy and, and truly the evil that was happening right there. You know, maybe just as a, as a little extra, hey, pay attention to this, <laughs> you know, in part because you had lost trust in your 
in your intuition, in your ability to recognize things. You know, you talked a little bit about not trusting yourself so much anymore. And and that's no wonder after being through years of a relationship with somebody who who twists reality so well. But to get that kind of really tangible, you know, thing right in your presence saying, <laughs> you know, there is more going on here than just a, a little problem that you can problem solve with some some talk therapy. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was like a huge sign of you're beyond talk therapy. You can try, but definitely don't stay in this oppressive space. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Have you been struggling with concerns about your emotional or physical safety? I want to let you know about an exciting new coaching program that can help you get peace of mind and confidence. I've spent more than 20 years learning how to recognize and avoid people and situations that might be dangerous and how to get out of threatening situations if I couldn't avoid them. I would love to put this experience to use, coaching you and designing your own personalized strategy for keeping yourself safe. Now, my normal coaching rate is $500 a month, but I figured out a way to make this as affordable as I possibly can as an exclusive offer for just eight people. This is the Power Up Your Safety Laser Coaching Program. And in this program, I will work with you over short 15 minute calls to tap into your natural abilities so that you don't have to memorize techniques that you might forget in the heat of the moment, to develop strategies, tools, and skills to protect yourself and not rely on someone else like 911 or your significant other to step in and save you, to learn physical self-defense skills based on what everybody can do that work no matter what your age, size, or shape. You also learn how predators, abusers, and criminals operate so that you can recognize warning signs and avoid being in dangerous situations. You'll create mental blueprints for real scenarios that you might face, which means that you'll be ready to act, not stuck trying to figure out what to do in the moment. And you'll develop a powerful mindset so that you are motivated to take action and don't feel intimidated or stuck in fear. So for these eight select clients, this program is less than $84 a month for a full year of unlimited 15-minute laser coaching sessions with me. We start with a 30-minute call so that I can learn more about your specific concerns and questions about keeping yourself and your loved ones safe. And then with each 15-minute call, we will agree on your homework for you to do so that you can take action between calls to move forward. And once you've done your homework, you can schedule your next call. So for example, you can have your call on a Wednesday, do your homework assignment right after your call and schedule your next call right away. If you recognize that this is the perfect solution to move you from where you are now to where you want to be, just go to my website, CynthiaJolikerRude.com slash laser to find out how you can apply to be one of the select group of personal clients who will get one full year of personal coaching from me for under $84 a month. Now, I just want to let you know that I do guarantee my program and my coaching. So if during our first call, you feel as though this is actually not a program for you, 
I will promptly return your money in full. So there's no risk at all to you in exploring this option. For those women who don't want to jump into a group program or who don't want to spend large amounts of time improving their personal safety, this is the way to go because we can go at the pace that you want to go, spend as much time as you want to spend each week or each month. And what we cover is personalized and customized just for you. I'm so excited to be able to offer this solution for you to help you overcome your concerns about your safety and to finally get you some peace of mind, confidence, and freedom. And I'm thrilled to be able to offer it in a way that suits your schedule and can be customized to meet your specific needs. So if you're interested in becoming one of the select number of clients, go to CynthiaJolacarud.com slash laser and sign up today. Well, can you talk a little bit about fear and how your relationship to it has changed? Mm, I love that question because I literally just worked through this yesterday. Yes. And and the being with a narcissist, especially, so he is a, the darkest of narcissists. Malignant. Yes. Thank you. I knew I had the first part. Yes. I read your book. Um, Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. With the malignant narcissist, there can be a lot of fear control in that. And they're very much on the borderline of almost psychologically being psychopaths. And I think very much that's the situation that I was in due to a lot of different things he did once I left and right before. And there was a lot of fear first within my own self. Again, like I wrote in my forward of my book, like I feared the unknown, which is in my human design chart. And one of the gates I have divined is that fear, fear of unknown. I feared it really felt like a dark abyss. Like if I just jump out again, like what's my future? I am nothing. No one's going to love me. I will be an old spinster for the rest of my life. Like all these really horrible, fearful narratives were already swirling in my head. And he just amplified them. He just, you know, solidified that. Yeah, you, you're not going to find anyone else who's going to love me, you know, love you. I'm the only one that loves you truly as you are. And I'm the only one that's here to help you get better. I'm the only one here that really, you know, accepts you as, you know, he, he called me at the beginning. I was very much a granola girl, a nature girl. And then he morphed me into this like city, you know, beautiful city girl, high heels, nails done, all that stuff. Like that was his agenda. And it was, it was so controlling that to work through it, all I had to do is literally just realize, okay, well, I can stay in this dark abyss where I'm at right now that thankfully I was able to physically see, or I can jump out into the dark unknown, like which one, like pick your evils, which one's the lesser of the two evil. Mm -hmm. And in that final exit, the lesser of two evil was the unknown because at least I won't be having to deal with all of this, you know, and all of the other things was like, what's the worst that could happen? You know? Okay. So I'm not loved by someone else. Like, 
at this point, if this is love, I don't want it. So I'm jumping out to the deep, dark abyss. Like this is not, I'm not having this anymore. But then after there was a lot of other things I had to deal with the fear of through the healing process, speaking up, right? Like just yesterday I had this real circumstance of real fear, like a real fear for my safety and my, my family's just all because I saw a drone flying over my house. And I know now that that's kind of like he works for a drone company. So immediately my head went to the fear. I stopped and I stared at it and it stopped and stared back at me, which made me freak out even more. And I'm like, I swear, I swear I'm staring right at him. He's staring right at me. But what do you do with that fear? Like you can't let it eat you alive. And I was able to just you know, breathe through it, go through what's the worst case scenarios, breathe through all of my safety nets. I have all these safety nets up. So what's the worst that can happen? You've really, you know, all we can do is rely on those safety nets and rely that, you know, God, the universe has me and it's going to protect me. And so you, you just have to kind of unfortunately I hate to say you just have to have faith but that is part of you know jumping out of fear is to have that faith Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's very powerful and I think well there's several things that you said there that have me nodding along and uh ahaing over here (laughs) you know this this idea of like what's the worst possible scenario <laughs> that yeah. for me has always been very helpful in figuring out what to do and how to respond things is, you know, like what's the best possible scenario and what's the worst possible scenario and and what's probably going to happen is somewhere in the middle, but somehow thinking through the worst case and coming up with some possible solutions, you know, whether that's, you know, to protect your mental health or, you know, to deal with a physical threat or, you know, it doesn't matter, but to think through possible solutions for that and just know that, okay, if I end up in that worst case situation, I'm not screwed. I actually do have options. I do have resources and, you know, I have a vague idea of a plan. Somehow that really does make fear take a step back. And so I love that that is part of what you do. I'm curious about the the languaging of safety nets, and you sort of walk that out a little bit to talk about faith and just know that God in the universe has you. Are there other things that you consider your safety nets? Because I, I think that what sometimes keeps us paralyzed in fear is is feeling like it's all on us, and you know we're all we've got. And oh gosh, what if I'm not enough? But but I like this concept of safety nets. So can you? Just describe a little bit more what you mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's real actionable ways that you can be safe. Let's say if you're thinking about leaving and need some, you know, guidance for that transition. Number one, just I just want to re go back and then I'll talk about the safety nets, but about the what's the worst case scenario. I picked that up from EFT tapping, which is a really great way to, to work through your fear and anxiety over something. And it walks you through 
all of those different sayings like, okay, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? I, I've got myself while you're tapping on all your acupressure points. So I just want to introduce that concept to your listeners to maybe look into that and do that as well to help them with the fear. And then actionable steps about safety net are, you know, could even involve legal steps if you need to file a restraining order is something that you you can do. If you need to change your name on anything, you absolutely have that step. If you need to have a support system, like you said, of friends and family, you know, to be able to rely on and almost like talk you off of the cliff, right? Like help you change your narrative. Like, oh, this is happening. You know, someone who's trusted and neutral so that that won't get pulled into your emotion. So it might not be a parent because it's really hard for parents to detach that emotion. But, you know, a professional, a therapist, a coach, maybe you end up blessed with a spouse or a friend in your life that can really be very neutral for you and not get pulled into your emotions. That's a really great safety net. And then another practical thing, if you're dealing with a malignant narcissist is go into your phone settings and turn off your location, like in your privacy settings, turn off, like, you know how your iPhone, like tracks where you are and locates Mm -hmm. you, things like that. Turn that off. So, you know, full well, that if I'm taking a picture and I'm posting it completely unrelated to them on social media or wherever, it's not going to show exactly where you're at, you know? So you have that safety and that feeling of, well, they can't track me down. And if worst case scenario, if they do track you down, what is your plan? You can, you know, you can call your local police. Let's see, have a restraining order for sure that will put that will put that safety net there for you. So you have a lot of actual in this world, real life, you know, steps that you can take. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I, I want to talk about the EFT tapping and some other other things that you found to be helpful. But before we go there, I just, I'm curious, did your ex stalk you or or try to follow you and, and try to interact with you after you left? So I was blessed that he didn't try and physically stalk me and come and say, he didn't, you know, bang on the door and get really angry and say, you need to come back or why did you leave? Very blessed he didn't do that because some do feel like they need to do that. However, I don't know if it's better or creepier, but he he very much, he touted, and I always knew he was very good at tech. Like he was all into the black web and or the dark web. I don't know what it's called. And so I very well know that he has his tricks up his sleeves. So for me, my protection against him is technology. So like I said, like turning off different settings, I have super advanced passwords on all of my things that really you can't just think up like, oh, what's this going to be? Like I have them encrypted because he did hack into my emails to find that I had, you know, signed a lease. And he also has threatened me like he had, I've obviously blocked his phone number. He still has my phone number, but I've blocked him from actually interacting with me because of a post I had put up on Instagram like years ago. And he, he threatened to blackmail me, which I actually put in my book. So therefore he can't blackmail him anymore because everyone who reads my book will know what he's trying to blackmail me against. It's dumb. It's really just a silly mistake, but you know, you, you make that when you're young. 
and, you know, has threatened to, you know, serve me a cease and desist, which even all while I don't use his name. My memoir is all like, as far as the location and the names, everyone's protected. It's all fictional names. It's just a story for those to really be touched and to learn from. So all of those things are my steps into being safe against them because of all of his cyber stalking and his cyber attacks. Mm-hmm. Well, knowing that, it makes a lot of sense that you would see a drone in the air and associate that with him. Yeah. That would just be, you know, an and additional my, my, piece. Yeah. And my current partner, he is an attorney. So he says right away, I told him that I saw that. And he said, well, that's illegal. You can't fly drones over residential area. And so when I have that ammunition of real knowledge of legally Mm -hmm. what's going on, and then I have what my narrative in my head thinks, oh my gosh, like I can totally see him doing something illegal like that just to find me and (laughs) whatever. Like even if he's, and then I went through my head, what if he then serves me a cease and desist? Honestly, it's moot because all of the names, everything, it's not connected to, nothing's connected to him. It won't hold up in the court of law. Like I know this because I'm with, an attorney. Mm-hmm. So it gives me peace of mind to know all that. Oh, that's that's great. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit with with you about like how do you deal with PTSD and like what techniques have you found to be helpful? And and you already mentioned EFT tapping. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that for for folks who haven't run across that before and then talk about the other things that you have found to be helpful in dealing with PTSD? Yeah, PTSD is not just for war vets. I want to just um, let all your listeners know that as well. It is a very real, it's pretty much like an emotional timestamp of your trauma and your body is reliving it. So whether it be like I, again, I write, I write in my book and I actually had another podcast host read it to me. And to be honest, it was really uncomfortable. (laughs) Cynthia, I don't know why, but she's like, let's just open up a random page in your book. And it was (laughs) one of these PTSD triggering examples that I shared. And it was very graphic and kind of like sexual in nature. And I was like, okay, (laughs) (laughs) this is awesome. I hope it touches somebody. But the PTSD can be triggered by anything, something very small, something, a smell or music or seeing something that triggers what you've experienced in your life. It can be very uh, big or very small. And the way that you can handle it first and foremost is to breathe. I just have to put that very simple advice there because you'll get all in your body, you'll get all knotted up, you'll feel the anxiety coming and you'll start to stop breathing or breathing very shallow. And when you center yourself in your body to breathe, it brings your life force back into your body. It brings you back into the present and it helps you exhale all of that anxiety and those those emotions and the timestamp out of your body. And then the second- Any particular way of breathing or does it just matter that you actually breathe? It just matters that you breathe deeply and out, out through your mouth. So breathe in, let's count to four and then breathe out as long as you need to breathe out like you're breathing, um, like you're blowing something like a bubble or, or something away. And yeah, breathing in the count of four and then blowing out through your mouth. That really helps get it out of your body through your mouth. Okay, cool. 
Thanks. Yep. Sorry, Thank I jumped in there because no, <laughs> I'm always okay. curious about people's breathing techniques. So, <laughs> yes, yeah, and please don't hyperventilate at all, or you know, if you feel dizzy, then change up the, the counting of your timing. Whatever feels good to your body, do. But exhaling through your your mouth. I've done a few breathing exercises with a couple of people, and I had to stop. I'm like, you're making me hyperventilate. I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to your body. And then the second is um, EFT tapping. Like I mentioned, we're going to talk about that. So it's emotional frequency therapy with tapping. So there's actually a lot of people who have done different YouTube videos on this. And I've created one as well. And you, you, what you do is you're tapping on all those acupressure points. You start like in your your third eye, and then you travel to the side of your eye and below your eye, beneath your nose, your chin, your collarbone. And so there's all these different points that you're tapping. And each time you tap it, you say a phrase to, um, at first, you're going to acknowledge it, right? It's going to, your anxiety level is not going to reduce much because you're acknowledging and you're holding space for that feeling and those emotions. And then your second time round, you're going to do it again. You're going to take a deep breath and you're going to examine where your anxiety level is, one to 10. And you're going to do it again and tap through some different phrases that you can read. And I have this available in my healing guide from the book. So it's if you download your healing guide on my website, you can get this. So that's why I'm not being specific of exactly what to say, because there's a lot mm-hmm. of different phrases you say. So okay. you go through and you're you're going through the now you're you're kind of starting to help rewrite the narrative in your head and you're tapping through, right? Like what's the worst that can happen? I am safe. You know, all is this, all is going to work out. Okay. And then the, you breathe again at the end of those taps and you go through one more round. And this is like the affirmation phase where you're talking about, you know, I am safe. I am, you know, I am calm and, you know, I am calm and collected and you're really just finding that calm and you're affirming it and you're tapping it. And when you say it, it is so right. Words and thoughts manifest. So the third one really should bring you down your level, a couple, a couple numbers, wherever you're at, depending on what's happening. So, and you can do this practice daily. This is not something that you just do one off, especially if you're experiencing PTSD, don't do it out of reaction to PTSD. Do it as a as a preventative. So you wake up in the morning, you do this first thing, 21 to 28 days straight, and you really get that calm and it'll permanently stick in your body. And then, of course, you can do it after that kind of as a maintenance. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I only knew like bare minimum. I, I did have somebody teach me how to do it many, many years ago, but there weren't any phrases or anything associated with it. And it certainly wasn't a, a practice. So I really like that. That's, that's, that's oh, yeah. really a neat, it's a neat way, you know, and it's not a super difficult thing to add into your day. Yeah, it's not. It only takes just maybe 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So what were some of the other ways that you found that were helpful with dealing with PTSD? Well, I, I would go back to the animals at the time. I actually did have horses as one of my business. So I was fortunate enough to be able to ride every day. 
And I, especially on those days, I felt really leery. I did not choose my thoroughbred to ride. (laughs) I rode the most calm and cool horse just to feel that walking motion, left, right, left, right. If you don't have access to horses, you don't have um, the ability to do that therapy, or maybe you're afraid of that and it kind of amps your anxiety up, you can walk yourself. When you have the motion of left, right, they've done studies where they've also done studies where your your eyeballs are tracking something left and right, like a tennis ball or something, whatever. It's the same motion as you walking and you're stepping left and right, left and right. It helps with the PTSD. And again, just bringing yourself back in your present body and taking you out of your past and what you you were experiencing before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is is that... Is the eye movement thing is, I I worked with a therapist many years ago who used an eye method, uh, an eye movement method. Gosh, I'm trying I to remember what it was called. E- I know, EMDR? Yes. Yeah, EMDR? Yes, EMDR, yes. Okay. And, and did you have any experience with that? I wasn't professionally, I didn't professionally go and get MDR, EMDR. But I did walk because I remember my therapist at the time was telling me because she she knew I only could afford to pay her. (laughs) So she didn't want to recommend me going to pay for more EMDR. (laughs) She said, go for a walk. When you feel this coming into your body, walk, just go for a walk. And it does the same thing, she said. So interesting. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I go for a walk is great advice for dealing with pretty much anything that comes up that disturbs your peace. Yeah, um, but that EMDR methodology and and therapy is something that I've had other people recommend for people yeah. who have suffered trauma. Yeah, and yes. I would say my I have I've done a full extensive interview with a friend of mine on my podcast about EMDR, and she said that it's not the easiest route. To be completely honest, she's like, I wish that I didn't have to have done it, but I'm glad I did it because what it does is it actually takes you back into feeling those feelings. It almost like puts you back into the PTSD. It's like desensitizing training, you know, with like horses, you know, you're supposed to put them in the stressful situation to desensitize them and then they're fine. That's Mm -hmm. pretty much what EMDR is, is like getting you, putting you back in that scenario. You're feeling all the feels, you're absorbing it. And then you're, you're kind of processing it with your therapist. And so that it does amplify up before it gets better. Interesting. So, oh my gosh, we've been talking for an hour, but I have several more questions for you. So can you talk a little bit about boundaries? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think you probably have some insights into boundaries (laughs) that would be very useful for other women who have been in this kind of a situation, you know, with a narcissist, because obviously boundaries really don't exist when you're in a situation with somebody like this. Can you just talk a little bit about your your thoughts, insights on boundaries? Yeah, I think boundaries are very important if you're going to survive. Let's say you can't leave immediately. You have children. You need to start making your own money. The first thing that you can do is to start setting boundaries for yourself. And I don't advise you just setting boundaries and just giving them a blanket statement like you can't do this anymore, like because then that's going to cause conflict and another argument and they're going to lash out at you. What you do is within yourself, you start to draw boundaries and you say, you know what, I'm not going to allow him to talk to me like this anymore. 
And so when he does or she, I'm going to disengage. I'm, I'm not even going to continue to keep answering, right? The biggest thing that narcissists want is attention. So when you're continually feeding into their argument, their conversation about themselves or, you know, pity parties, whatever they've got going on that moment, treat them like a stranger and don't feel empathy for them and kind of disengage. And it will kind of perk up their antenna like, oh, this is new behavior. This is interesting and different, but okay. Like, <laughs> wonder what's up with her. But they'll, they're so into themselves, they'll just keep talking. And so you could literally just be like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, but not actually ask them questions about it or be on their side and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe she did that. You know, mm-hmm. like don't engage that way. You need to be able to disengage in those conversations. And I think a big boundary is to really give yourself time for you. I think when you're in a relationship with a narcissist, you're fully drained. You don't have enough time for you. So take a lot more time to feed your soul, feed yourself. So maybe that's time away at the beach, the park, the spa, whatever you can do and afford to really invest in yourself, you know, meditation, yoga, something that's very mindful. So this is more of a time boundary rather than staying sucked in their sphere all the time, really make a boundary to, to, to spend a lot more time with yourself, you know, and rather than being in the interactive role play with them. I I love that. And that really sort of fits back with your self-care practice of finding a tree to go sit under. You know, I think you can't, you can't process things and deal with things and come up with plans or anything if you're constantly in the middle of the chaos. Yeah. And they will constantly being trying to to switch your narrative and and manipulate into you onto their agenda. So if you're spending Mm -hmm. more time with yourself, your, your own personal agenda will be stronger. And if you're doing it mindfully, it will also come out of a place of love that their ego can't, well, it will, but not as much as if you're coming, your ego, you know, two egos together make an explosion. If you're coming from love and they're coming from ego, then it won't be as much of an explosion, that conversation. Mm-hmm. You definitely won't get through to them. However, <laughs> you can, you can at least do that. Yeah, but you can at least have that space. I have one other thought, and I didn't get to do it, and he was very against it, and most narcissists probably will be. But drawing a boundary of, you know, having the conversation that they need to go to therapy, which is really difficult. And some can do it and some can't. But maybe you need to say, you know what, you need to go to therapy or, you know, this this relationship will will need to be ended or however you feel you're safe to have that conversation. Maybe it's different mm-hmm. verbiage because they might freak out on you. Maybe it's exactly what they need to hear because they need to go to therapy and they they do love you, but they're just, you know, stuck in their conditioning. You're Depends talking on about what type going, of narcissist you're talking about. You're, and you're so talking about individual therapy yes. for them? Yes, individual. Yeah. Don't even try couples therapy because what they really need to do is work on themselves. And maybe you, you go to approach it as, you know, I'm, you find therapy on yourself and you say, I've really found this amazing therapist. She's really helped me with this. And they see your change, right? Over time, then that they might be more open to going to therapy themselves. It just depends mm-hmm. on where they're at in their journey, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would definitely advise against trying to do couples therapy with somebody like this because it becomes another 
weapon to use yes. to twist things around on you again. Yes. Um, and they probably, unless you have an excellent therapist, they will probably manipulate the therapists as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. With, with my first husband, we did try couples therapy, but mm-hmm. I discovered that the only reason that he was going was to help me with my problems. Mm. And <laughs> had absolutely <laughs> nothing to do with him. You know, and and you know, back to some of the things that you said earlier, like I was in the situation where I kept thinking that I needed to change, I needed to do this work. And if only I could accomplish X in myself, yeah. then things would be better. And right. uh, what a losing situation that was. <laughs> yeah. And the only reason you should be working on yourself is for your own self and your own spiritual and soul's journey. And if that relationship and he, you know, does become better, because I have met someone who I've interviewed on my podcast, who she is currently in the relationship. She's a coach for other women to figure out if they should stay or go. But she she has a very hard boundary. And she says the moment he stops going to therapy because he has recognized he's narcissistic and his abuse has changed, his talking about himself has not changed. <laughs> but he, he stopped, you know, emotionally abusing her because of his therapy. But she's the, she said he knows the minute he stops going to therapy, I'm out, you know, mm-hmm. and that just depends on where you're at in your relationship. If you feel, you know, that that person isn't ma- malignant and can really receive that boundary. Right. Yeah. Well, I would like to shift gears for a second and ask you, like, what exactly is North Node medicine? And how Mm. does it help women who have experienced trauma or violence? Because Mm. you are the only person I've ever met that talks about this. Oh, I love that. I have discovered North Node medicine through my astrology chart after learning, you know, all about myself through my spiritual journey. I've, you know, got my certification in meditation teaching. Then I was like, oh my gosh, like I was so pulled into astrology. Anyways, I discovered it. And what it is, is your North Star, essentially. It's your destiny. It is what your soul is yearning towards in the now and the future. So, and the directly opposite in your chart is your South Node. And what these are, are these are points where the Earth and the Moon their orbits intersect, you know, because we, the earth goes around the sun and then the moon goes around the earth and there's orbits, right? So when those, Mm -hmm. the earth and moon's orbit intersects at the time of your birth is where your North node is your chart. And depending on where it is in which Zodiac sign and which house it gives you your North star, like what you're destined, like as a theme to be moving towards and doing and evolving as the soul. So it helps because when you come out of this relationship, you're like, I don't even know who I am anymore. Like, why was I in that relationship? And who am I? And what am I to do now? And the beautiful thing is that your south node is exactly what you just went through. It's your struggles. It's your past life and this life and the earlier life's struggles of really like your shadow side or things that you needed to learn. And for me, you know, mine is in Sagittarius. So mine is to learn about not being judgmental and one-sided, right? So coming from that Christian background, being super judgmental, not talking to my family. Once I learned that that wasn't quite my path, (laughs) then I became very judgmental, which then led to um, me not talking to them and not having that safety net and getting latched into this narcissist. So you've got your struggles in the South Node, but 
oh, you know, only we can only evolve and really grow and learn and have this beam, right? Like this diamond out of the coal. If we're learning and we understand what our struggles are, you can't, you can't evolve without a struggle. Can't have a lotus flower without mud, right? All of that. Mm -hmm. So your North node is your destiny. It is your, like what your soul's purpose is, what you need to kind of focus your energy on moving forward. So for example, mine is in Gemini and my 10th house, 10th house is your career. Gemini is about multiple perspectives, discussions, hence the podcast, <laughs> hence hearing about all of these, you know, beautiful women's perspectives on their relationships and how they've grown and different healing modalities. And yeah, it's just, that's where my soul is going. New experiences, new people, new conversations and sharing and teaching the truth out into the world to help other, other women through this situation. So that is really cool. And I can see how if you've, you know, what you're coming out of is trauma and violence, you know, it's like life as you knew it is, is done. Like you're in a new life. After that, it's a huge change from what was. And that question of like, what is going to be is such a huge thing. It's easy to be just stymied and and lost and just stuck with, I don't know. All I know is I am not going back. I'm not, I'm not going back to where I came from. I have no clue where I, where I'm going. And so it makes sense to me that, you know, this sort of an approach can really help you see here's where you can go. And it's not just some random, you know, throw an arrow out and see where it lands, (laughs) you know, it actually resonates with you. And uh, so many of all of these tribes are like, yes. And I can see it just talking with them for an hour. I can see that this is exactly what their their destiny is and what their soul is yearning towards, and that you'd be surprised. Cool. A, lo- a lot of people in the flow of our are already going towards that. But if you're not there yet, it helps you also get out of the victim mode. It's like, okay, now I have something to like look forward to. I can stop worrying about you know the struggles and the mud in the past, and I can really focus on my diamond and my gem and like have my soul have a purpose. Mm-hmm. And that's what we all need. That's what we're all here for, really, is to, to, I don't know if find it is the right thing. It's like uncover it or wake up uh, to it. Yeah. Yeah. I right? mean, you use, yeah. you use the, like your website is unlock your destiny, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, to me, that's like, yeah, exactly. Like here's, here's a key that can help you unlock that. That's really cool. Exactly. So you also, you work in the field of human design for those who haven't encountered that at all. And I just have a glancing knowledge. Like I've only known one woman who works with this. So I do not know a ton, but can you just briefly explain what that is and how that plays into the other work that you do? Oh yeah. The human design is so incredible because it helps now, once you've kind of know what your soul's yearning is towards, you've got that key to unlock it. Now it's like, this is a strategy and how to do it. So because we all have this specific blueprint, some of us have different strategies of how to flow with the universe rather than, you know, getting run down and hitting our heads against the walls and it not being really successful or no one listening to us. It's because you're not quite using your strategy to flow with the universe. 
So it allows you to have that strategy. I love that it gives us an actual key of how to make you know, decisions based on our authorities. So some of us need to wait to really make a decision. Some of us need to literally listen to our guts. And so it gives you these this like superpower and confidence to know that you're making a decision that's aligned with your soul. I love also that it gives us in the incarnation cross, it gives us again, another key, like a deeper key that ties into your North node, your North star type key of what your life's purpose is. We we all have like a main theme. Some of us, it's a personal theme where it's very much still our soul is developing and it's a personal development. And some of us, it's an interpersonal theme where we're, we're now ready as a soul to go out and touch lives of others, to lead, to help. So yeah, it's just such an amazing roadmap into how to thrive and and live as your soul aligned with the universe and living your life's purpose. That is so cool. And, and what I love about both of these things is, you know, we've been talking about this in terms of recovering from trauma and violence and you know, building life after that. But both of these can be super cool, super helpful for anybody. You know, you don't have to have experienced yeah. trauma and violence. Like, this kind of insight into yourself can really serve anybody at any point in their in their life. So that I think that's mm-hmm. really cool. It's, yeah, absolutely. I get a lot of uh, women entrepreneurs going, I just don't know if I'm on the right path. And so we just look at their chart and I help them give that boost of confidence or like kind of switch their angle about how their what their strategy is. Mm -hmm. It's also like the thing that popped into my head as you were describing it was like, this is the antidote to you should. (laughs) How do we get into trouble most of the time as we make decisions based on, well, you should do this and you should try that and you should go in this direction. And, you know, we do that and hands up like guilty. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But having the insight into, well, actually for you, this is really how you operate best. And this is the mode that works best for you. That is such a good antidote to that. You should message, you know, that that we all receive from various sources. So that I... Yeah, I and everyone will admit I jumped up and down a little bit when you were when you were talking about that because I was like, oh, I love this. <laughs> I love that you describe it like that because it's absolutely something that you know so much of our society and culture says, and we're even in school, you know, conditioned to be more of a you know a doer, right? Just do it. Well, not always. Maybe we need to wait for the invitation. Maybe some people need to wait to respond. There's only a very tiny amount of people that should just do it. And those are manifestors. Everyone else, the generating manifestors, generators, you know, they need to wait to respond. And the projectors, they need to wait for the invitation. And the reflectors, well, they just have to wait 28 days. So (laughs) only a tiny percentage get to just do it. And our whole culture is always surrounded by like, just push, push, go, go, do it, do it. And that's really not how we should be operating. Oh, so cool. Well, I have one more question for you before we wrap up. How do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? By self-discovery. Once you know your amazing soul that's inside you is glowing and is hot and it's ready to be fierce and go out into the world and shine to the world, 
you have to identify all of those first before you can be confident to take off those layers to shine them. So again, tapping, tapping into your self-worth and knowing what you're, who you are and, you know, why you're, why you're here. Oh, I love that. Self-discovery. Yes. Yeah. Well, Raven, this has been absolutely awesome. I have enjoyed every second of this conversation and I'm sure our listeners have too. Mm -hmm. So can you share with them how they can find you out in the world? Yes, you can find me. Um, my website's unlockyourdestiny.net. You can download that free healing guide there with the EFT tapping and it has inner child meditations, like actual guided audio meditations. You can find your North Node in there as well. I have a cool like chart that you can find it and then I have a printable. And then uh, Facebook, you can find me my my group that I have that I would love for all of you to join to continue with this self-transformation journey is Women Empath Self-Development to Unlock Your Destiny. And Instagram, it's unlockyourdestiny.ravenscott. Awesome. All right. Well, we will have those links in our show notes. And I think, do you also have a YouTube channel? Oh, yes, I do. Okay. I do. Yep. Well, we'll so much energy everywhere, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> I don't know exactly if you search. I think if you search Unlock Your Destiny with Raven Scott, the YouTube channel should pop up. But yeah. All right. Well, I will find it and we will put it in the show notes to make it easy <laughs> for people to find. Well, Raven, this has been so good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been an absolute honor to talk with you and I have learned a ton. Oh, I really appreciate you having me. It's been such a beautiful conversation with you. I love all of your questions and our, yeah, just the conversation we had. It's great. Well, this has been the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence and safety, life after trauma and how to build personal power and courage. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members, and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.